Before you stand for the reading of the word, pay attention to it. We're in Daniel again. We're in chapter 8. This is another vision that Daniel saw, but uh, either in your bulletin or in your open Bible, uh, kind of glance through the text, and let me just highlight a few things, then we'll read it. We'll get more out of the reading if we have an idea of where we're going. Uh, This is uh, a vision of Daniel, and it follows the scheme of some of the previous visions we've seen before, and that is that there are multiple kingdoms that will follow the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom is, in fact, falling. This is the third year of of Belshazzar, and so we know the handwriting is on the wall. It's imminent that the Babylonian kingdom, the great kingdom of the ancient world, is fallen. It has been taken over by another kingdom, that is the the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's represented in this particular vision under the uh, a ram, a male sheep, a big two-horned ram, uh, you'll see. One, one horn's a little bigger than the other because in the, 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 the other one came up a little bit there in the vision. That's because the Medes weren't that strong and the, and the uh, Persians ended up dominating the whole kingdom. A lot of little details in this that we won't have time to look at. The next animal that shows up and, and really runs the ram right off the turf is the a he-goat or a male goat. This is going to represent, and this is not my interpretation, this comes right out of the scriptures later on, this is, represents the king of Greece. It's a goat with a big huge horn in the middle because that particular horn was incredible. It came out of, out of the Macedonian Greece area of Philip of Macedon's son, Alexander, who was a student of Aristotle, uh, sets forth to pick up where his father was leaving off and ended up conquering the world even in an incredible fashion. So that's the exploit you'll see in here of the male goat. But then all of a sudden that big horn between his eyes is shattered and from that comes four horns. Well, this is exactly what happened to Alexander the Great when he died at age 33. Some say he was killed, some say he committed suicide. But anyway, he was at the peak of his performance and, and doing what the scripture says here. He was acting and, and succeeding uh, uh, exceedingly well. He had become great hence Alexander the Great, and he was ruling the world and had expanded the empire. And when he died, the empire was too big for anybody to handle. About 15 of his generals competed for the mastery of the empire. And after about 12 of them were killed, there remained a handful and they fought it out among themselves for about a dozen years. And when they did, four kingdoms arose out of that. One kingdom, and it says that they're the four winds, and they really were. The one that was the furthest to the west was the original Macedonian Empire. It, it had Greece, Macedonia, and Thrace. That large area ended up being the mission field for the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, you remember. That whole region of the world was taken over by a general named Cassandra. And then the other part, Asia Minor, which would be uh, in the eastern block, It was uh, taken over by a a, uh, general uh, Antigonus. And then uh, the the larger portion that really expanded, that had an outstanding king who we'll see in the passage later, is a fellow by the name of uh, uh, the Seleucids. And they take over the area of Syria in in that mid-eastern area. And and these geography lines are pretty much the same as they are now. The names are there, but you, you just follow them out, you can see. And uh, he had an outstanding successor, about seven kings down uh, the dynasty, a guy by the name Antiochus Epiphanes. And we'll see him in the text. He ends up being the little horn. 
And the final one, of course, is the Ptolemy, the uh, king of uh, Egypt. So they had the four, and of course, Egypt goes down to Ethiopia and a good portion of North Africa. So there's the four regions of the world, the north, the south, the east, and the west, ruled by these four generals who became mighty emperors in and of themselves. And the one that became the most dominant was, was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's the one that turns his wrath toward the blessed land, toward the promised land, toward the people of God, toward Judea. And, and Judea was in shambles at the time. And this scope of history here is about four centuries. Think about that for just a minute. We, you know, the, the, the hands of prophecy move slow on the clock, and, and yet they come to pass. And this is God really tying the Old Testament and all that ancient history going all the way back to Abraham and beyond Noah, Adam, tying all of that history then to these kingdoms that are going to lead up to the, to the fourth kingdom, which is the Roman Empire, which is not mentioned in this text, but is mentioned in, next in the next chapter. And it will bring us then to the fifth kingdom, the final kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of God, Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And that kingdom starts right along there in the early years of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. So we're looking at a scope here of about 400 years between the Testaments, and that'll bring us to a period of about 160 years before Christ, and it will bring us up, up to this era, and we'll talk about what it is. Now you say, Ron, oh no, not a, another ancient history lesson? Yes, yes. Because this is the history lesson that is basically going to, history repeats itself, you've heard? History repeats itself. Well, history repeats itself to those that don't know history for sure. Uh, but it does repeat itself over and over and over. And this is a, 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 a drama that takes place in these years before Christ and at the very beginning of the empire of Christ, Christendom, the kingdom of Christ, and it will take place in the last years of the early part of the kingdom of God in his reign on earth as that reign ends and we move into what is a purely a spiritual. So now the metaphysical is coming. Stones and bones history, rock ribbed history. Read this in your history book. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't even have to mention the word God and you can study this stuff out. This is, this is ancient history and it's well documented. Every one of these countries have famous historians who have kept this record for us. Yet this was all given prophetically. This was all given by Daniel about 500 years before these events began to, to unfold. And in this particular history, we're reminded of something that God's going to show us of what happens to his people under discipline, under his wrath, and then how the nations around the world also play into the whole picture. This is a, a picture of God's, a little portion of God's eternal plan for the ages and for humanity and for our salvation. And so it moves in then to the metaphysical and the spiritual pretty quickly. In fact, let me just throw a couple of things at you. Every time you'll hear about in your history here as we study this and as you read it and study it on your own, that the temple is being attacked and the temple is being desecrated, and the temple and the priests are being slaughtered, and, and there's abominations in the temple. Think church. What? Know ye not that ye, you all, it's plural, are the temple of God? 
And so when the, when the Bible speaks in, these, in this historical account, it's talking about the temple being attacked. He's talking about the church being attacked. And even though it, it, it happened historically here in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, it happens later during the days of the Fourth Empire, the Roman Empire, the period in which we now live as an attack upon the church. It is the massive persecution of the church. And the blasphemies that are, that are connected with what Antiochus Epiphanes does and brings about what's called the abomination of desolation has occurred repeatedly. It occurred again in 70 AD and it's occurred from time to time in great church persecutions. And there'll be a greater end time fulfillment of all of this. There'll be another little horn and he'll be a wretched, wretched person. <laughs> and that's the Antichrist. But right now, I better get to the scripture reading at least, otherwise we'll, we won't even get that done. I don't want the word out there that Ron just talks, he doesn't read the Bible. <clears throat> All right, stand if you would for the reading of it. Maybe the story will make a little sense to you as we go. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susha, the capital, which is on the in the providence of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I said at Ulai Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. Didn't charge eastward because he was already in the east. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one that could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was, he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That's the land of Canaan. That's the land of Judah, the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. 
And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it's called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, did you catch all that? And what's sad is we didn't read the the uh, final quarter of the chapter, and that's where the interpretation is given. So if I say something that you didn't hear in the reading, you say, Ron, where'd you get that? Probably got it out of the, the last uh, dozen verses of, of this very chapter that we just didn't read. I'm going to do two things that might be helpful. One is I'm going to put out some notes so that I don't just get too far off track. And number two, I'm going to put a clock on me. See how far we go. Well, did you understand the flow of where we are? We're not dealing with all the empires. We're only dealing with two. And we're not really dealing too much with the, the uh, Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. It's symbolized there as the, as the ram. And he does all he wants to do. He's most powerful. But then he cannot stand up to the, uh, the uh, male goat with the horn, Alexander the Great. It mentioned how he came as though he didn't touch the ground. That was one of the features of Alexander's army. They, they moved so fast. In fact, they were on to so many of these lands uh, and they fought the Persians over and over and over in many ways over a long period of time. But while they're fighting the Persians over here and can't conquer the Persians, Alexander the Great's conquering everything else. And one of the things he did was he would come quickly and swiftly upon a nation. They wouldn't even have a chance to call up the National Guard because it was over before it started. They, just, they were just conquered like that. So now what we're really looking at and focusing in this particular vision is on this little horn. Now, we've mentioned a little horn in the previous chapter. Maybe not the same one that's here. We'll deal with that when we, when we uh, have to deal with it because it's talked about in the next chapter. And uh, the little horn might be a general designation. Uh, here, it's unquestionable as to what it refers to. It refers to Antiochus Epiphanes. Who is Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, he's this little horn. And uh, there's things about him that are extremely important to know. One is he was about as illegitimate to the throne uh, as anybody could be, but he knew how to handle intrigue and deception and assassination and all sorts of things. And he's, a, I can't remember exactly, the seventh or eighth king down in the dynasties of the Seleucid dynasty, which ruled over Syria, which always, the little land of Canaan, the little land of Palestine, has always been kind of bunched in with bigger countries because it's so tiny and it's usually bunched in with Syria. In fact, it is during the days of the um, Roman Empire, Palestine is a part of the, the, uh, the province of Syria with its, with its uh, capital city and what? Antioch, named after Antiochus and especially this particular one. Epiphanies means a, a, a vision or something, an epiphany and something that comes out, and from the very beginning, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes made a lot of claims to deity. Uh, he, he took this notion of the kings being the sons of God and being somewhat royalty, but yet also divinity, and he just took it to the hilt. 
He took it as far as it could possibly go. And one of the things that he did in his campaigns was he, uh, uh, as I mentioned, he had, he had come from Greece originally, Alexander the Great, and uh, he uh, uh, comes out of the Four Horns. He grows exceedingly toward the east. Now, of course, according to the way the ancient map is there, Macedonia and Greece and Thrace and that part of the eastern Mediterranean is actually the west of that ancient world. It's the western side of that known world. So he comes from the west and he goes east and he goes all the way in Concord. He said he grew great. He moved toward the west. He turned toward the glorious land. And then he talks about how he grew great again. Uh, and even it talks about the host of heaven and the hosts and even the prince of the host. Antiochus Epiphanes offered a direct challenge to the Most High God. He literally challenged the Most High God. You remember how God kept working with Nebuchadnezzar to humble him and to bring him down? How God showed Belshazzar visions? How, how Darius or Darius saw the miracle of the Lord in the lion's den and all the rest of it? God manifested himself to these kings to let them know that they are kings and he has put them there and they have risen by his power and by his hand, but they are not greater than the Lord. That the Lord is, is the creator and the sovereign over all. This lesson just never did get through to Antiochus. He considered himself to be just that. And because of that, he felt like he was not only the arbiter of the military and the economy and everything else that went in the, into the land. And, of course, he continued that great oper operation of Hellenization. Remember Alexander the Greek, one of the things he did was he spread Greek culture all over the world. That's why we had a universal language in the time of the New Testament because everybody understood, at least in official capacity, the common or the Koine Greek, which was originally was from Athens or the Attica Greek, but they had a, a language. The New Testament was written in that language because the New Testament took, took a Greek language and put it on a Roman road and took it to the ends of the earth. And it's how the gospel got to the ends of the earth. Isaiah saw that coming. He said, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those that bring good tidings that bring the gospel. So the gospel spreading was set in, no, Christ came in the fullness of time. There was an incredible number of things, I mentioned them from time to time, that had to kind of line up to make it for the perfect time for the kingdom of God to come on earth in the person of the baby in Bethlehem and to grow and to do that he all did, that he did in his earthly ministry and then ascend to heaven to be enthroned upon the throne and to rule his people as they're still on earth and then one day go and receive them and bring them to himself and establish an eternal kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. But God is lining all this up. And he's in really no hurry because three times in the passage, somebody wanted to know something about the time. And boy, this is where the prophetic opinions just scatter. <laughs> but it's critical to know, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be, this is the scope of the vision, what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Let's, let me just go around the room here and see if anybody knows what that means. Well, some have thought that means the end of the world, in which case they've got all of this stuff happening in prophecy, and you see a lot of teaching like that. But carefully read, it says, it specifies the time of the end of the indignation. What is the, what is the time, the latter end? It was toward the end of the indignation is when we're talking about. And it refers to the appointed time, that is, there's a 
there's a, a, a termination point that is at the end of this indignation. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> well, it's talking about the indignation is the time of God's wrath, God's indignation, his fury upon his own people. Can you imagine such a thing as that? Most people don't read the Bible very carefully and they sort of miss the part or they ignore the part or they try to throw out the part that talks about the wrath and the judgment of God. They just don't want to take the flood story seriously because that's the pouring out of the wrath of God. They don't want to really deal too carefully with the, with the commands God gave his people as they entered into Canaan under Joshua's military leadership of conquering and destroying and killing and, and plundering and doing everything. That's just, that's just I, the God I believe in wouldn't do all that. You haven't, you're not believing the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible spends his whole time exercising incredible indignation and wrath upon sinners and upon those that blaspheme him and for those that deny him and for those that worship false gods, for those that disobey his commandments, those that step outside the boundaries of his law and what's worse for those that don't keep covenant, those with whom God has made covenant, that is the Jewish people, Abraham's people, God has even a special set of relational laws and, and stipulations spelled out in the law and the covenant. And if they don't keep those, they have even greater punishment. And God promised them in Deuteronomy that if they served other gods, if they fell into wickedness, if they disobeyed the commandments, if they didn't follow any statutes, if they didn't walk in his ways, if they didn't obey his voice, he was going to punish them. And he lists all the ways he was going to punish them. And one way was he's going to scatter them which he did on several occasions, especially during the Babylonian conquest and the Assyrian conquest. He scattered them, the diaspora, all over the place. And then one of the things he promises them that he was going to cut them off. That is that at a certain point, when the time came, God's indignation was going to come forth where he, even his covenant people, because they had disobeyed him and had blasphemed him and had done everything you can think of to deny him, and because they were not his covenant people in any way, they had gone uh, after other gods, etc., etc., God was going to cut them off. That is, he was going to eliminate them. He was going to do away with them. He's going to make them no more. God did that finally, as his patience ran over the centuries, he finally did that to that covenant people, disobedient, unbelieving people in 70 A.D., in the days of the fourth empire under the Caesars, and you're familiar with what happens there. The New Testament era occurs just before that 770 AD time period. In that point, God will use the iron rule of Rome under uh, Vespasian and Titus to destroy Israel, and not one stone remains upon another. And the whole nation, as a nation, is destroyed. Its lineage is destroyed, its, uh, its uh, uh, temple is destroyed, its sacrificial system, its priesthood, and everything. And his holy scriptures were not destroyed, they were completely fulfilled in Christ. In 30 AD, when Christ was crucified, buried, and he rose again. And 40 years later, a generation later, like 40 years in the wilderness they were tested, 40 years God gave those unbelieving Sadducees, Pharisees, the chief priests, 
And all of the 40 years of gospel preaching right under their nose by the apostles there in Jerusalem standing up to them. That's the whole story of Peter and John and being thrown in prison, the day of Pentecost and healing in the temple and being cast out of the synagogue and the, and, and the martyrdom of James and, and the martyrdom of Stephen and all that stuff. The persecution that Paul put upon the church at first. All of that is, is the unbelieving Israel lashing out at the Christ that God had appointed and anointed to be their savior. And finally, God brings it to an end. Well, this is the, the indignation from a long standpoint of God putting up with these people all the way from the wilderness of Sinai through Canaan, through hundreds of years of theocracy, and now through 70 years of captivity, and for another 150, I'm sorry, for another 500 years, they are going to be enjoying the wrath of God. Oh, I need to stop preaching right here, and this is a good point. The wrath of God is sure. The wrath of God is God not just throwing a little fit, God getting all irritated and anxious and not able to control himself. The wrath of God is his settled, holy, righteous, balanced, fair and just disposition against sin. And the only place that God deals with sin is in the body of a sinner. The only way God can punish sin is in the the physical body of a sinner who has committed the sin. That's why Christ died for us on the cross bodily. Because God couldn't deal with sin just in a in a generic sense and in a cosmic sense, he had to find a sinner to pour his wrath into. And that's what he did in Christ on the cross on our behalf, those of us who are believers. But if you're not in Christ, if you don't come to Christ, if you don't trust to Christ, if you're not trusting his saving work as your saving work, then you bear your own sins. The soul that sins, it shall die. You don't bear the sins of your fathers. You don't bear the sins of your grandfather. You don't bear the sins of your children. You don't bear the sins of your neighbor. You bear your sins in your own body. And if they're unrepented and unpurged by the blood of Christ, then the the wrath of God is designed for you. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. It's settled on him already. And so that's what God did to his own people. He brought about an indignation, a great wrathful punishment. And let me show you just as I conclude in about two minutes what it was. It was Antiochus Epiphanes came in there and on his way back from fighting the Ptolemies in Egypt. By the way, you know Cleopatra was a descendant of the Ptolemies. If, if you don't know any history, you've just seen a movie or two in your lifetime. Uh, that's where you connect all this. He came back from fighting the Ptolemies and he hated Judea so much that he, he kind of stopped off in Jerusalem and just did all the damage he could do. He slaughtered a lot of the Levitical priests. And these are the people that had returned back to the land, rebuilt the wall under Nehemiah, rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel, had, had set everything up. The second temple had been worshiping the Lord, reinstituted the sacrifice. God had answered all of his promises to, to, for his people to return to the land. People were all excited about the modern Zionist state being the fulfillment. It's not the fulfillment of those passages. Those passages were fulfilled historically and literally in the second temple in the days of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and others. Literally fulfilled. Completely fulfilled. 
And after all of that, God's restoring and bringing his people back to land. They had not followed him. They had drifted away. And when they got there, a lot of the priests just surrendered and turned the whole thing over to Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm way ahead of the story, but later on when they get their freedom, it's an old 80-year-old priest who is told to offer a pagan sacrifice on an altar in a little village just 18 miles north of Jerusalem. And that old 80-year-old priest, I admire that more every day as I get closer to 80. (laughs) That 80-year-old priest wouldn't have it. He killed the Jewish priest that had sold out and was a traitor. And he killed the priest that had been sent there, the the military guy that had been sent there by Antiochus. And that started what you'd expect a revolution and a war, which eventually under the Hasmanian dynasty, John Hyrcanus, read about it in the book of of Maccabees. Maccabees in 1-2 tells you the story of that. But, but, the, but the priesthood had become so corrupt that they surrendered, they gave up, they, they betrayed their own people. And then he would desecrate in every way. He would put altars all over the temple to pagan gods and offer sacrifices to them. And many of the Jewish priests would do that. They would do what Caesar commanded them to do. Well, it wasn't Caesar then, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. It's the same principle. Just whatever mandate was given, whatever orders were given, don't come to the temple, don't come to church, stay home. Whatever the orders were, they obeyed it. And they betrayed the people of God and they put a stench in the nostrils of God. God had it right up to here with them. And then he allowed the greatest disgrace you could possibly imagine. You know how the Jews feel about pork? Antiochus Epiphanes offered a sow on the holy altar in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem. He was an abomination. He desecrated the temple in every way you could. Not only that, he kept referring to himself as the Almighty. He talked himself up. He said great things. And we'll see later this other little horn that comes along later, the Antichrist. He will have the same disposition toward God. He thinks he is God and has the right to command people on those terms. What can we learn from this? Anything at all? When we see what happened here, two things. Number one, God is in control of everything, as you know. He lays it out and everything he says comes to pass. That's what Isaiah the prophet said over and over. But then we also see that God gives us one lesson after another to give us fair, full, frequent warnings in our own souls about our own relationship to God. And finally, when the time comes, God allows the wickedness of the world. God doesn't have to get mean and tough and angry and nasty to do anything to anybody. All he has to do is just step back one step and let the wickedness and the evil and the treachery and all of the vileness that's in the the human family as it is just take over and do its worst. And that's what happened. But then through it all, God has given a prophetic record showing the people what will come to pass and how if they will endure and pull through, they will. And the hope of Israel kept Israel alive as they looked forward to the coming Messiah. And that's really all we're called upon to do, to look forward to the coming Christ. No matter what happens around us, don't betray the Savior.
don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't compromise. Don't sell out. Don't apostatize. Hold on to God and his Christ because he is ultimately the victor. And we ask the question, who is on the Lord's side? And we hope the answer is, that would be all of us. That would be all of us. Come lead us in the supper, Tommy.